asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. A warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us for a brand new month on the show. Coming up over the next hour, Kyiv under attack. At least three people have died and more than a dozen injured after fresh Russian missile strikes overnight. The worst loss of life there in weeks. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky meeting with European leaders in Moldova today. He's emphasized that his country is ready to join NATO Even the NATO Secretary General says Ukraine will be a member. Of course, for both sides, the question is when. Also, one down, one to go. The U.S. House approving the debt ceiling bill on Wednesday. Now it heads to the Senate. We're live in Washington for the latest on that and on financial markets around the world. U.S. stock market futures pointing to a softer open as we await the timing of that Senate vote. Plus, of course, tomorrow's important U.S. jobs report. And ahead of that, new data showing private sector firms added a whopping 278,000 jobs net last month, almost 100,000 more than expected. Confusing what slowdown. And over in Europe, an inflation and jobs jolt too. Eurozone inflation falling to the lowest level in more than a year. Unemployment also dropping to record lows. Stocks, as you can see, higher over in Europe. And we have all the details on that as well. Lots to get to today, as always. But we do begin with the latest from Ukraine. And as mentioned, three people, including a child and her mother, lost their lives in the capital, Kyiv, killed by falling debris from a missile. They were actually trying to get into a bomb shelter, but found it locked. In the meantime, more shelling on the Russian border region of Belgorod. The governor there says at least eight people were injured in the latest strike. Sam Kiley joins us now. Sam, I know you've uh, discussed and reported on many tragedies in Ukraine over the last 16 months, but specifically this story of, of the family trying to get access to that bunker. Do we know why the door was locked and they couldn't get in? Well, Julia, sadly, that is the uh, subject of an official investigation now in Kyiv. People uh, were saying, uh, eyewitnesses and indeed survivors of this uh, crash of debris, which followed the downing of an incoming missile or or was a consequence of the anti-missile batteries firing over Kyiv, said that they were seeking, a whole large numbers of civilians were trying to get into the Soviet, one of these Soviet-era bunkers that uh, are all over the city and indeed all over the country uh, from the days of the Cold War. And incredibly, after 16 months of war, they found the door locked. And soon after that moment, when they were trying to get in, banging on the door, trying to find officials with a key, there was the descent of this uh, debris and two people killed, a mother and child. Absolutely uh, avoidable tragedy in so many ways. Uh, and one that uh, clearly the Ukrainians are going to be extremely upset about. Uh, But it is also upsetting the Russians that the Ukrainian new uh, campaign is focused on. There is now, according to Russian officials, uh, cross-border shelling on a pretty frequent basis of border villages close to the Ukrainian border inside Russia. Uh, There are claims uh, coming from a Russian dissident group supported by Ukraine. Those are the uh, Russians fighting 
under the banner of Ukraine that they have crossed into Russia once again. Uh, the Russians claiming that they repelled two companies of these fighters. We don't have independent corroboration of either claim as yet, but this is clearly part of really the, the beginnings of the counteroffensive. I think we could be safely saying this is what is new now in terms of the tactics and the strategy of the Ukrainians is to try to take the war into uh, the Russian uh, landscape. The problem with that, of course, as we've seen uh, in Russia, is that they, that means that eight people, according to officials there, have been injured. Civilians are having to evacuate their villages. And that starts to look uh, a bit too like what the Russians have been doing inside Ukraine. And that's going to be a delicate uh, thing for the Ukrainians to navigate in terms of their tactical approach. Now, the Russian fighters going to fight inside Russia on behalf of Ukraine have been broadcasting on social media, trying to get civilians out of the area, telling civilians to stay uh, in safety if they can't do that underground and in bunkers, but also insisting that they are absolutely not intent on targeting civilians. Julia. Sam Kali there. Thank you. And President Zelensky is in Moldova attending the European Political Community Summit with around 50 other leaders. He's again urging NATO to make Ukraine a member. Ukraine is ready to be in NATO. We are waiting when NATO will be ready to host and to see and to have Ukraine. And uh, I think security guarantees are very important, not only for Ukraine, for our neighbors, for Moldova, because of, of the Russia and of their aggression in Ukraine and potential aggression for other parts of Europe. Klaus Bastian joins us now. The problem for NATO, of course, is it would have profound implications um, for consequences for this war and beyond. Even the Secretary General said Ukraine will be a member. Claire, the question, particularly for Ukrainians at this moment, is when? Yeah, and I think, look, it's been clear all along and was made even more clear today, both by the German foreign minister and by the NATO Secretary General himself, that they cannot join while this war is going on. That is, I think, sort of a, a part of the structure of NATO. Article 5 would be triggered. NATO would end up in an all-out war with Russia. Now, of course, you could argue that had they been able to join earlier, this could have been a deterrent against Russian aggression. We will never know. But the frustration for Ukraine uh, is that nothing officially really has changed in its sort of political relationship with NATO since 2008, when we got the Bucharest commitment that the alliance would support uh, its bid for membership. The Secretary of State of the US, Anthony Blinken, saying today, we all stand by that Bucharest commitment. But that was 15 years ago, and Ukraine is now looking for some kind of interim concrete step, something like security guarantees, as you heard say, and he elaborated on this even further in Moldova. Take a listen. This is the sword point I would like to emphasize. In summer, in Vilnius, at the NATO summit, the clear invitation to membership for Ukraine is needed, and the security guarantees on the way to NATO membership are needed. In fall, on our accession to the EU, clear positive decision is needed, and we are also preparing for peace summit, which will guide the world majority to implement the joint peace formula. So I think you really got a sense of his frustration uh, in those comments. He said uh, before that, you know, how is it that Ukraine is essentially paying 
in its blood for freedom and European values and cannot get any concrete decisions either on the EU or NATO. If we can't, what hope is there, he said, uh, for anyone else? Now, the NATO Secretary General has come out again and said that they're looking at sort of, he said, credible uh, arrangements to guarantee Ukraine's security after this war is over. Things like uh, upgrading the NATO-Ukraine Commission to council status, these sort of interim measures. Uh, all of that would be, I think, welcomed by Kiev, but they are frustrated, Julia, that they have not seen any concrete action as of yet. Interesting, Claire. I wanted to get your take on what we were just discussing with um, Sam Kiley, too. And as you mentioned, um, the, the noises from the Germans are interesting, I think, in the last week or so, particularly with regards to what Sam just said to us about perhaps what we're seeing now is the beginning of the counteroffensive with some of the violence that we're seeing on Mos in Moscow and on Russian territory. The German government spokesperson saying yesterday Germany says Ukraine has a legitimate right to defend itself against Russian attacks under international law versus the, the noises that we're getting from the American side, which is far more cautious, even as Ukraine denies any involvement in, in, in those attacks. Interesting in light of the noises that we're hearing from the NATO Secretary General and members there and, and the concerns, ongoing concerns of the Ukrainians. You know, I think this this is a backdrop for these summits that does, in, to some degree, complicate matters for Ukraine's allies now that it, it looks, at least certainly we've seen an escalation uh, in the past days and weeks, like more of this war is now being fought on Russian soil. And of course, we know, for example, that a lot of the military aid, the Western weapons that Ukraine uh, has been given, have demanded from Ukraine assurances that they will not be used on Russian territory. Now, we don't really have evidence that they've done that as, as of yet. And Ukraine has not admitted to being behind any of these cross-border attacks, including uh, that drone attack on Moscow that the Russian authorities uh, averted. But look, the Secretary General of NATO was actually asked about this earlier today. Uh, he was asked, does this shift your uh, stance on Ukraine at all. And he was not particularly explicit. He said, look, we still stand by Ukraine's right to defend itself. This is clearly a Russian war of aggression. Did not go as far, for example, as the German government spokesperson or even the British Foreign Secretary earlier this week who said that Ukraine has a right to project force uh, outside of its own borders, which sparked fury uh, in Moscow and essentially caused the former prime minister uh, to say that the UK was in an undeclared war with Russia. So a very delicate situation and Russia is very sensitive to these comments. Yeah, and perfectly put. That's the backdrop. Everybody choosing their words very carefully here, I think. Um, Claire Sebastian, great to have your context. Thank you. OK, let's bring you some good news now. New data this morning shows inflation in Europe falling to its lowest since the war in Ukraine began. Consumer prices up by still large annual 6.1 percent last month. But compare that to the 7 percent level we saw back in April. There was a slowdown in price rises in a whole host of categories and speculation now that it could nudge the European Central Bank into pausing its series of interest rate hikes. Anna Stewart joins us now. I read that, but I don't buy it. <laughs> Uh, OK, give me the details. It's not just about inflation either. It's about a strong growth number, which I admit poses some problems. But we're still talking about a plus six percent inflation rate. Let's get right. a grip. Right. Prices are moving in the right direction, but they're still increasing. Right. So people in the Eurozone aren't going to be feeling much of a benefit here. And they'll be looking at this news and hoping that they soon do feel a benefit at the shop till. Two elements to be concerned about services inflation. It only slowed to 5% from 5.2%. So actually not a huge amount of movement there. And food inflation, which came down by 1%. That is great, but it's still at 12.5%, which is why we have to be concerned, I think, about wages. People are continuing 
understandably, to chase a higher wage, to try and pay for this huge increase in their grocery bill and services bills and everything else. And we are seeing high wage growth. The last quarterly data from the Eurozone on this showed wages increasing between 5 and 6% from the year before. I think it's a really important indicator to look at if we're going to consider when will we see inflation really reach a sustainable level? Well, I think we have to see uh, wage growth start to slow. And you know what? The labour market in the Eurozone is tight. Yeah, and that's the key. So I think we're sort of agreeing, but not saying Boy. it, that um, <laughs> the European Central Bank not going to be pausing anytime soon. I agree with you. I don't think so. But it was interesting today that with a tiny glimmer of good news, a few economists did put their hands up and say, ha, ah, maybe this, this is spell a sooner end to all these rate hikes. I'm not so sure. June certainly is baked in. The big question mark is July. Maybe they take a pause and wait for another rate hike. The market is still pricing in at least two. And I do wonder if you can put into the equation economies under strain. We were talking last week, of course, about Germany entering into a recession. All that said, ECB President Christine Lagarde did speak today and she said we still have ground to cover to bring rates to sufficiently restrictive levels. So I think you're right. I don't think we're going to see much of a let up here. The ECB, as we all know, was pretty slow to act on inflation. I think they will take a very cautious approach to ending the rate hikes. Yeah. And even if she thinks she's got the room and the ECB have the room, perhaps the pause are not going to signal that yet. Let's um, have some of that tightening still priced in to uh, do some of the work for them, perhaps. Anna, thank you. OK, now the debt ceiling drama and race to avoid a historic U.S. default now shifts to the U.S. Senate. House lawmakers voted to raise the government debt ceiling late Wednesday Yay night. President Joe Biden praised the House for passing the deal and urged the Senate now to, quote, pass it as quickly as possible. Lawmakers in the Senate want to move ahead with their vote later today, but not yet clear if that will happen. Arlette Sines joins us now. Arlette, I hate to sound like a child on this, but um, are we there yet? <laughs> well, the bill has at least made its way through the House, but now there is still the difficult task of getting this passed in the Senate. But just to take a step back for a moment, uh, that vote last night that took place in the House of Representatives did occur along bipartisan lines. There was about uh, a little over uh, half of those votes coming from Democrats uh, and then Republicans supplying the rest. And it really capped off uh, weeks of very tense negotiations and very vocal frustrations uh, that were expressed by some uh, in the Republican Party and some within the Democratic Party. Now, the president praised this uh, for being a bipartisan compromise, and he called House Speaker Kevin McCarthy shortly after that vote passed. But now the difficult task of getting this through the Senate before that Monday, June 5th deadline is what is at hand. Now, both Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have said that they want to move on this as quickly as possible. They are hoping that they can hold a vote uh, as by the weekend. There is a possibility they could even vote on it today. But the issue at hand at this moment is that any one senator can slow down the proceedings. And there have already been a number of senators who have said that they want to present amendment votes to this process. Uh, Leadership has seemed open to holding these amendments, but there's also a little bit of a snag there because if an amendment is actually adopted, then they have to send this uh, bill all the way back to the House for another vote. So all eyes will be on the coming days, whether any of those amendments will get any types of votes, whether there will be any agreements to try to speed up this timing as they are trying to avert default as June 5th is that date that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has outlined that the U.S. could run out of cash to pay its bills. Yes. 
So the answer is not yet to my are we there? <laughs> yeah. Arlette, great to have you with us. Thank you. Arlette signs there. All right, straight ahead. Alexa angst. Amazon's virtual assistant accused of being a pint-sized snoop. Amazon paying the price, but it's a little one. That story coming up. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner? A CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Forget June bugs. Investors need a round of June hugs, I think, after a challenging month of trade around the globe. The Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, was the big U.S. winner last month, rallying almost 6%. Now, just compare and contrast that with the Dow off by more than 3%. It's actually one of the biggest disparities in U.S. stock market performance in years. There's also some concern about the lack of market breadth. Only a handful of tech stocks like NVIDIA, as we've been talking about, the chip maker, powering gains overall. NVIDIA, for its parts, up more than 30% in the past month. Then take a look at the Japanese Nikkei, the global winner overall in May. That was up by some 7%. It's best month in more than two and a half years. And take a look at Europe. Losses pretty much across the board there. The question of where next for all these stock markets in many ways depends on a whole host of things. The debt ceiling agreement in the United States, incoming economic data, including U.S. jobs and inflation numbers, plus prospects for a Federal Reserve policy pause. There's also a growing consensus that the U.S. central bank will leave rates where they are this month, but also leave the door open for further tightening should it be required. Much to discuss. And I'm pleased to say Lisa Shallot joins us now. She's the chief investment officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, unfortunately, I want to start with the U.S. debt ceiling um, debate. It has investors and have investors in the past month come to you at any point and said, look, are my and is my money safe in U.S. assets and the U.S. dollar, or was it never that bad? It, it really was never that bad. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the things that I have found uh, amusing over the last three or four days is, you know, some some market commentators talking about the fact that, you know, markets seem to, you know, be be having a relief rally because we settled the debt ceiling or we seem close uh, to a deal. I mean, the United States stock market never discounted <laughs> fear here. Um, we only saw fear uh, really in the very, very front end of the United States Treasury curve when we were looking at, you know, yields for one to three month T-bills. Uh, and, um, 
you know, the, even there, um, you know, things have, have rapidly pulled back. So, um, you know, this is, is not an issue that I think, um, you know, long-term stock investors were particularly concerned about. Uh, I think the broader issue around, um, you know, the United States overall debt and, and you know, our ability to continue to service that debt uh, if, in fact, interest rates are higher for longer, is a legitimate long-term concern for investors. Uh, it calls into question, you know, some of the benefits that the U.S. has had uh, as the world's reserve currency and, and the strength of the U.S. dollar and things of that nature. But I think that's going to be the, a debate for another day. And yet again, the politicians in, in Washington have managed to kick it down the road. Yeah. And just quickly to um, draw a line under this, too, the point that you made, which I think is very important, we saw investors that invest in the very shorter term debt were like, look, I don't want to be holding this um, for the most part if there is some kind of event where interest payments don't get paid. Has, does that have any material impact on the economy? Do you think it's had any material impact on the economy, including, I think, lines from the media that were pretty alarmist over this period? Yeah, no, I <laughs> I think a lot of what you saw on the very uh, front end of the yield curve was a lot of, quote unquote, inside baseball, meaning yeah. uh, positioning <laughs> among among uh, uh, money market uh, funds uh, who moved out of uh, ultra short duration United States treasuries and, and kind of secured their deposits uh, with reverse repo. So, um you know, again, a lot of inside baseball, pretty technical stuff. Uh, I don't think that this, uh, you know, debt ceiling debate itself has had a big impact on the market or on the economy. I think the bigger question, and we've been um, saying this a lot, which is it wasn't really for us a question of if, but when and how. And so I think there are two takeaways that investors um, focused on the debt ceiling need to think about. The first is uh, the when. It now appears that Janet Yellen will probably be able to re-enter uh, the Treasury issuance market in the second half of June, or if not sooner. Um, that action is going to begin as she sells treasuries to drain liquidity out of the market. What a lot of folks don't recognize is during this last, you know, six months, Janet Yellen uh, in her spend down of the Treasury General account has in essence been stimulating the economy because uh -huh. she's been spending money and sending out checks without uh, th th that spending being diffused with borrowing. Uh, now, as we rebuild that general account over the next six months to the tune of about 650 to 700 billion dollars, uh, you know, she's going to be doing the equivalent liquidity drain as the Fed's been doing right with their QT. So the Fed's been, uh, you know, taking 95 billion out uh, and, um, you know, she'll now be probably draining about another hundred. So it's going to feel like QT doubled. And uh, I think that's going to be a headwind to markets as liquidity begins to tighten up here. I mean, one of the mysteries, I think, of this uh, cycle uh, has been that since October, despite the fact uh, that the Fed has, uh, you know, continued hiking rates, 
is financial conditions have actually eased and they're significantly looser than they were uh, last October. So that that could start to provide a headwind uh, as as the Treasury rebuilds its general account. This is such an important point. And just to um, so that my viewers understand QT, quantitative tightening. So sort of the tightening of conditions that, that, that do make it sort of harder to borrow, for example, in in the real economy. OK, so let's tie this and the importance of that now to what we've seen in the stock market. Because if you look at the numbers overall, and I mentioned it, particularly um, for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq, the performance has been pretty great. But you look beneath the surface and you realize it's a bunch of tech stocks and a very narrow bunch of them that are sort of lifting all boats. And then you compare it to some of the smaller cap stocks and the banks, for example, the regional banks, and the situation looks pretty bleak. So what's going on and how long can the broader market be sustained by a a sort of bunch of tech stocks as excited as we are by AI? Yeah, I mean, Julie, unfortunately, you and I have seen this movie before. Many and, times. <laughs> um, it, it, yes. It, 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 it doesn't end well. And what I mean by that uh, is that, look, we, we can all, you know, uh, garner um, a bunch of enthusiasm for new technologies. And that was certainly, you know, the case in 1999, 2000, around the build out. Uh, of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. But when markets become extraordinarily narrow as they are now, when the investment themes become extraordinarily narrow, when a handful of mega cap tax stocks that are already dominant in in terms of their their share of the market capitalization of the indices, um, it's very hard to kind of uh, you know, form ahead of steam for a new bull market. And what you tend to get uh, is increasing fragility because the expectations uh, of the market get concentrated in a handful of stocks, which as we've begun to see, every, you know, one of those stocks isn't going to meet and beat every one of those, ex- you know, ever increasingly exuberant expectations. Yeah. Right? And so, so, w- what happens is as valuations get richer and richer, those stocks become more and more dependent on low interest rates to support high PE multiples. And so, you know, the question that I've posed, um, you know, to some of these, the investors who are bulled up around this theme is, look, what happens? You know, AI is great, but what happens uh, if, in fact, the Fed either hikes rates again this year as opposed to cutting them uh, and or inflation remains persistent and rates are higher for longer in this four to five percent zip code, mm. can you really justify, you know, uh, a 30 or a 40 times forward multiple on some of these tax stocks uh, and do it, you know, uh, in, in in good faith? And And, you know, that's where... Uh, these things start to get dicey is that the valuations just disconnect. Yeah, particularly when we have, like we had today, uh, this morning in the United States, an incredibly strong jobs report. Um, it sort of buys the Federal Reserve that little bit more room, perhaps, to say, look, we still need to do a bit more work. Um, can I ask exactly. you about Japan? 
Yeah. Can I ask you about Japan? Because this was like the chart of the week and everybody's talking about this. A 33-year high for the stock market, um, record buyback, so companies buying back their own stocks. And the other thing that's exciting, in contrast to what we were just discussing, um, in valuation terms, you know, there's still opportunity, arguably. What do we think of this? Um, so we're actually pretty excited about about the position that Japan is in um, right now. Um, not only do we finally, finally have the fruits of Abenomics, which, as you know, we we can remind everyone, was really kind of planted as a as a philosophical um, uh, you know tenant uh, of. Um, you know, uh, of Abe, uh, that the corporations in Japan should become more shareholder friendly, that they should make less complex some of their uh, corporate organizations. They should, uh, you know, focus on improving their return on equity. Now, it's taken quite a long time. It's taken time for the Bank of Japan to actually generate real growth and, you know, positive inflation metrics for the Japanese economy. They've achieved that now. And, uh, you know, as, as, as well, um, you know, we're in a position where the geopolitics between the U.S. and China have obviously changed profoundly. And they've changed in a way that increases Japan's importance to both players. Japan is obviously extraordinarily well positioned as an exporter. Uh, throughout Southeast Asia to China directly, uh, and obviously, you know, has a longstanding allied uh, trade relationship with the United States. Um, And all of this is coming at a time when the Japanese yen has weakened, not only against the United States dollar, I mean, we're back to about 140, just to put that in perspective, um, for for investors, you know, only two years ago, um, the yen was about, you know, 40% stronger. Uh, and so that's a huge competitive advantage for Japanese manufacturers and exporters. And that weakness, that currency weakness has been true against the United States dollar and now increasingly against even the renminbi. Uh, and so Japan's in a very interesting uh, time in history. And, and I do think that this most recent move, um, to your point, Julia, may have legs here, uh, you know, for another six to 12 months. Yeah. And I love your point about um, seeing if we do see further disengagement by the United States and China, then Japan's in this perfectly position to perhaps service both countries and and benefit. Um, Lisa, fascinating to have you on. Great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Lisa Shallot there, the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Thank you. Good to chat, Julia. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street is back 
and open for business on Thursday. U.S. investors getting in tune on the first day of June, but in early trade, at least, the bulls are not yet in the room. A mostly lower open for U.S. stocks with the debt ceiling vote and, of course, tomorrow's jobs data firmly in focus. Macy's is an early session loser. The U.S. retailer says sales have been weakening this spring. It's also cutting its full-year outlook. Fresh concern that U.S. consumers are turning cautious as inflation remains high. This is part of the dichotomy of the U.S. economy, as we were just discussing. Now, the longtime chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase says he had little first-hand knowledge of the bank's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. This comes from the newly released transcript of Jamie Dimon's deposition related to lawsuits against J.P. Morgan. Now, during the eight-hour interview, Dimon denies having ever met or talked to Epstein. Epstein held accounts with J.P. Morgan for 15 years, with the bank eventually severing ties with him back in 2013. Well, now the bank is facing lawsuits brought by a victim of Epstein and by the Attorney General of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Allegedly, J.P. Morgan ignored multiple warnings that Epstein was using money to finance sex crimes. Christine Romans joins us on this now. Christine, what more do we know? You know, Epstein was a J.P. Morgan client, Julia, from 1998 to 2013. And during that time, Epstein was indicted on a prostitution charge in 2006 involving a minor, pleaded guilty in 2008. Uh, Then in 2019, Epstein was arrested on federal sex trafficking charges, and he died by suicide while detained. Now, Diamond says he was not really aware of Epstein's criminal history and relationship with his bank until after that 2019 news broke. Now, these suits allege people at Chase knew about the sex trafficking allegations against Epstein, but they still did business with him. In a statement to CNN, a spokesperson, a J.P. Morgan spokesperson told us that had the firm believed he was engaged in an ongoing sex trafficking operation, Epstein would not have been retained as a client. In hindsight, we regret he was a client. Uh, Diamond did acknowledge that he is now aware that some J.P. Morgan employees knew Epstein was charged with sex crimes involving cash and that he was moving large amounts of cash in his accounts in, in 2007. And J.P. Morgan has sued a former banker there, Jess Staley, known to be a friend of Epstein, alleging he is to blame for that long 15-year relationship between the bank and Epstein. And Staley, Julia, for his part, has denied all wrongdoing. Julia? Christine Romans there. Thank you so much for that. Now, fears are growing of another religious crackdown in southern China. Members of a Muslim ethnic minority have been defying the government's attempts to demolish the dome of of their mosque. They say they are the latest victims of Beijing's campaign to remove religious symbols from places of worship. Ivan Watson has the details. A rare confrontation between law enforcement and the faithful. Chinese Muslims clash with police outside a mosque in southwestern China. For two days last weekend, residents of the village of Najaying tried to protect their mosque from a Chinese government reconstruction plan. They want to demolish the roof of our mosque, an emotional local protester tells CNN, speaking on condition of anonymity. This is our last bit of dignity, the protester says. It's like someone going to your house and demolishing it. CNN reached out to Chinese authorities for comment, but the only official acknowledgement of the incident comes from this local government statement urging protesters to turn themselves in after disrupting social order and causing severe adverse impact. Is it safe to be a Muslim in China today? Not safe. 
Maju is an imam and activist from the Hui Muslim ethnic minority, living in exile in the U.S. No Muslim is safe in China. My people, the Hui people, everyone is trembling, scared, and living in fear. He claims the Chinese government has targeted hundreds of Hui mosques across the country, demolishing their Arabic-inspired domes and minarets and replacing them with Chinese-styled architecture. CNN has independently verified the before and after images of several of these cases, part of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's policy of sinicization, instructing religions to basically look more Chinese. The logic of what China is trying to do is about social re-engineering. Uh, it's, 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 it's by remolding people. Academics and activists say since she came to power, there have been crackdowns on expressions of religious, ethnic and linguistic identity. Xi Jinping's policies are aimed at all socially organized groups, including Christians, Buddhists and even some civil organizations, including LGBTQ. CNN extensively reported on the detention of more than a million ethnic Uyghurs and other minorities in China's Xinjiang region in internment camps. And CNN reported on clashes around churches in eastern China, where authorities chopped the crosses off the top of Christian places of worship. Those scenes in 2015, remarkably similar to the images of protesters trying to protect their mosque today in Najiaying. Today they'll change our mosque, tomorrow they'll ban us from going to mosques, the local protester tells CNN. A last-ditch effort to protect deeply personal concepts of faith and identity from being defined by the Chinese state. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Coming up after the break, Alexa, are you listening? Amazon accused of breaching privacy laws by keeping recordings of young users' voices. The details, next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. Amazon has agreed to pay $25 million fine after the U.S. government found its Alexa service breached privacy rules. According to the Federal Trade Commission, Amazon indefinitely kept Alexa voice recordings of children using the service in violation of a U.S. law on privacy for youngsters. Claire Duffy has more on this. Claire, the first thing I looked at was um, the annual revenues of Amazon, which I believe last year were at $514 billion. So um, this fine is um, a grain of salt on a peanut in, uh, in several bags. But let's separately put that aside. Um, what, what laws were breached? How long were these recordings kept? And now what? So, Julia, this was actually part of twin settlements that Amazon agreed to yesterday related to privacy violations from, as you said, its Alexa smart recording device, but also its Ring home doorbell device. Now, Amazon, the FTC claimed 
violated a law that requires company restricts companies rather than from keeping the recordings of children or personal information of children without parental consent. The FTC claimed that Amazon retained recordings of children from these Alexa devices indefinitely, and in some cases, Julia even failed to delete these recordings even when parents specifically requested it. Okay, so it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because everyone who uses Alexa knows that you can go back in history and you can look at every single command that that you've given to it, music, for example. So I guess as a parent, you could go back and see what your children have been listening to. Um, my concern today and why I think this question needs to be asked is the ability to perhaps using artificial intelligence and tools like this going forward to manipulate voices, to perhaps weaponize voices, be it a child or otherwise. Um, I guess that's the danger and part of the deeper sensitivity today than ever before. Right. That was one of the concerns the FTC raised here is that parents might not be aware of all the ways that their children's data is being used by these companies. It also raised concerns right. that too many too many employees within, within Amazon had access to these kinds of recordings and this kind of personal information, and that parents might not realize that their children's voices are being used to train and improve Amazon's AI systems. Now, this settlement will require Amazon not to use geolocation data or recordings of children to train its AI going forward. It also will require the company to delete recordings and other personal information when users specifically request it and to go back and delete uh, in, in accordance with past requests that the FTC said Amazon had failed to honor. It's worth noting that Amazon said that it didn't violate any laws and that these settlements will only add to its already strong privacy practices. But this does seem like a really symbolic and important sort of gesture from the FTC in terms of holding Amazon accountable for those promises. Yeah, I mean, they hold a lot of data, don't they? It's just a case of ciphering, sifting through it and deciding what needs to be deleted when. Um, Interesting comments from Amazon there too, I think. Um, Claire, great to have you. Thank you. Okay, many Latino businesses in several U.S. states temporarily closing their doors, holding a protest under the banner, A Day Without Immigrants. It's in response to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' hardline anti-immigration law that targets undocumented workers. Carlos Suarez joins us now. Carlos, give us the context on this. What was the decision and the rule change by the Florida governor? And clearly it's having an impact on some businesses. You can kind of see both sides of this. That's exactly right, uh, Julia. So uh, immigrants across the state of Florida, they're trying to highlight the economic impact that they have on Florida's economy by this work stoppage. Uh, we're in Immokalee, Florida. That's a farming community to the east of Fort Myers, where several businesses, restaurants, even the Catholic Church uh, have told us they are going to close today uh, in support of immigrants across uh, the state of Florida. There's a new law that's going to go into effect in July here in Florida that does a number of things. It is going to require that some businesses uh, expand the use of a federal database that's called E-Verify to make sure that all of the workers that they're hiring are in the U.S. legally. It's also going to require that some hospitals uh, ask their patients about their immigration status, and it is going to make it a crime, a third-degree felony for someone uh, to bring uh, someone that is in the U.S. illegally into the state of Florida. Now, yesterday, we were at a restaurant in West Palm Beach on the other side of uh, the coast of Florida, where a, a restaurant owner told us that a third of his staff, a third of his workers have quit. Many of them are undocumented workers. They told him, look, we don't feel safe in Florida. We don't want to be here anymore. And so they are moving out. He was pretty emotional in uh, our conversation, telling us the impact that this is really having on his business. Here's a bit of that conversation. 
I have in this country 23 years. Working, working hard. Fortunately, I had the opportunity to open the, uh, to open the restaurant with my partners. And then we are not criminal. I feel bad because I opened the restaurant five years ago. I'm losing my business for one law. It's not fair. And so uh, that owner there told us he is closing his restaurant today in support of immigrants across the state of Florida today. Uh, again, this uh, law does not uh, go into effect until July, but there is a great deal of anxiety right now among uh, farming communities as well as uh, just immigrants, really no matter of their status, because they're not sure exactly how this law is going to impact them. Again, uh, some of these changes are going to be felt more on the business side of things, but then you start talking about some questions that are going to be asked of folks in hospitals. And as you can understand, Julia, that makes a good deal of these immigrants very uncomfortable. Yeah, very understandable. But Carlos, you can understand the authorities' desire to not encourage illegal immigration. But at the same time, I know a lot of these businesses, particularly in the farming industry, are saying um, they're doing jobs that, that, that others don't want to do. So um, what do you want us to do? Carlos, great to have you. Thank you. Carlos Suarez there. Okay, coming up after the break, in the hot seat over airline seats. U.S. regulators under pressure to look at safety as airlines go for more seats, more money too, and less space. Welcome back to First Move. If you regularly fly economy and you feel airlines are getting yeah, just a little bit more cramped, well, two Democratic senators are on your side. For starters, they say U.S. airline regulator the FAA should take safety more seriously and carry out realistic evacuation tests. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Muntean joins <laughs> us now. But you know what blew me away, actually, about this story was that I believe the safety regulations were written back in the 1960s. If nothing else, as a society, we are more... Um, um, rotund? Can I use that word? <laughs> we're, also, we're also taller. Um, that, so, yeah. It's uh, that's true. Shocking. You know, I think, I think maybe passengers are a little bit more quick to complain now, too. That's there's true. A bit, there's a bit I'm of a shift. More. But, you know, <laughs> think about this. Like, more seats on an airplane, the airlines have to make the seats smaller, but more seats make it harder to evacuate an airplane in an emergency. So Senator Tammy Deckworth is proposing this. And she says this is really all about safety, even though the unintended outcome here could be a regulation that makes it so that the airlines can't make seats any smaller. Let's talk about this over time. Back in 1960, the pitch of a seat, that's the distance between the back of your seat and your knee, essentially the leg room, uh, was about 35 inches on average, according to Flyers Rights. But nowadays, the average is about 31 inches. As people have gotten bigger, as you mentioned, uh, the CDC here in the U.S. says Americans, uh, at least men, have gained about 30 pounds in that period of time and have gotten an inch taller. So Duckworth says these FAA tests that took place back in 2019, where they did a mock evacuation of an airplane, it was really skewed. There weren't folks under 18, nobody over the age of 60, no carry-on bags, no car seats, no kids. And so she says that this is really long overdue to redo these tests. I want you to listen now here because she says to me 
that they could really force the FAA's hand here by having them redo these tests and then putting in a regulation. Listen. It is very much long overdue. The standard that the FAA is using was set in the 1960s. And the fact of the matter is air travel has changed a lot since the 60s. Uh, there are a lot of folks on board, for example, with carry-on luggage because we can't, many people can't check their luggage anymore because there's additional fees. Uh, the FAA doesn't test, uh, do these tests where they include carry-on luggage. Can you hear the size of relief? from passengers who may want this. You know, airlines, of course, would chafe at this, Julia, because they would say that can't have more seats on a plane. It makes it more expensive, could cause fares to go up. But what's so interesting here is that the FAA really answers to Congress in a lot of ways, and the Federal Aviation Administration gets its budget from them, and they're going through reauthorization right now. So there could be a chance here. This could be the moment for a seat size regulation. We'll see. Yeah, there's a size issue here. There's a money issue here. But to back to my original point, 30 pounds and one inch, there's a height, weight, width thing going on there that's a bit out of whack. <laughs> Great to have you with us. We Any shall time. see. I'm all for more space. Price? Yeah. Okay, that's it for the show. <laughs> if you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. So you can search for at CNN and connect the world. It's up next. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.